I'd like to start with an optional show of hands. How many of us have been behind the wheel of a vehicle, seen the dreaded flashing blue or red lights, maybe heard a siren, realized the cop was after you, and you had better pull over? Once, twice, three, four, five. Me, myself, I'm in the more than five group. The first time was the summer of 1984. I was 20, and I was driving that 1974 VW Beetle, whose name was Bruno. He was the love bug edition, chartreuse with fancy black chrome. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, I came here to hear about fast cars and she's talking about a VW bug, just bear with me. It was about two in the morning. I was west of South Bend, Indiana, I was driving my parents' bug from Morgantown, West Virginia to Green Bay, Wisconsin. They had just sold their house. The movers came that morning and it was my job to wait around until the movers were done, sign the papers, then take my 16-year-old brother with me to their new house in Green Bay. My stepdad, the guy pointing to that for sale sign four eventful years later, gave me some advice before I made what would be the longest drive of my life to date. He said, if you're gonna speed, just follow the trucks. They have CBs, so they know where the cops are. Remember Citizen Band Radio, remember that? Yeah. <laughs> so when I caught the flashing lights behind me so bright in the middle of that dark night, I was startled and I was scared. Lights flashing, siren wailing, the cop pulled alongside me, pointed to the shoulder of the road, and then quickly sped forward and pulled over the truck that was in front of me. <laughs> I sat there, shaking as he approached. He motioned for me to roll down the window, which I literally did, remember those? Yeah. <laughs> License and registration, he said curtly. I hadn't even had the presence of mind to have these ready. It was my first time. I fumbled around, I finally handed them over. He studied them. He looked at me and at my little brother, who was also scared. Just following the truck, huh? <laughs> yes. Yes, I answered truthfully, wondering, how did he know? <laughs> I clocked you going 92 miles an hour. He said with that really grave voice they must teach at police academies. Wow, I said. I had no idea this car could go that fast. <laughs> I figured, stick with the truth. He chuckled, walked away with my license and registration. And as my heartbeat was finally slowing down, he returned with them and the dreaded ticket. Except it wasn't. It was an official written warning. Nothing to pay. No real consequences. The second time was the fall of 1987, and I was driving this adorable Volkswagen Cabriolet named Whiskey, in honor of one of my mother's favorite Clancy Brothers songs by the same name. I was heading home from an appointment with my therapist. Thank God I had started seeing a therapist much earlier that year, before my mother's death on May 10th. 
which was in fact Mother's Day, and she would have loved that. She had such a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> Therapy was helping me process losing her at the age of 46 when I was just 23. My mother was an intense, complicated, brilliant, passionate woman who died with amazing grace and dignity. I had a lot to mourn, and I was really crying it out that autumn afternoon when the dreaded lights appeared in my rearview mirror. Not knowing what I did wrong, I pulled over. The cop approached. May I please see your license and registration, he said to my tear-streaked face. This time I had them ready. Studying them, he said, where are you headed? Whoops. <laughs> where are you headed? Well, the truth worked last time. I'm coming back from an appointment with my therapist, I said. I see. Are you aware? This is a one-way street. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry was all I could think to say before I burst into a fresh set of tears. Hell yes, I was aware that Bartlett Street was a one-way street, and that's because I lived on Bartlett Street just a few blocks from where the cop pulled me over. <laughs> Intense grief can make you do crazy things, or at least it did to that young version of me. This time, not even a written warning. He just handed me back my license and registration, urged me to be more attentive, and told me to take care of myself. The next time was the summer of 1988. I was driving my stepdad's peppy 1988 VW Golf GTI, whose name was Alma, in honor of another one of my mother's favorite songs, this one by Tom Lehrer. Alma, did not need to draft an 18-wheel semi to go over 90 miles an hour. I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota to support my stepdad, Dean, in his quest to qualify for the Boston Marathon, which he would do by running the Twin Cities Marathon in under three hours and five minutes. I was his support team, and it was my job to meet him at a couple key mile markers at very precise times and give him his specially prepared energy drink. Now, this might seem like an easy job, uh, but I had never been to Minneapolis before. And keep in mind, this is 1988, years before the World Wide Web and GPS and all that mess. So I had an actual paper map, and I had it open kind of all over the place, trying to drive and navigate at, to the elusive mile 19 at the same time. And then the dreaded lights again. My heart sank. I knew there was probably no way I'd get to mile 19 in time. Dean had trained so hard for this, and I literally knew in my bones how hard, because he and I had run two marathons together already, one in August of 1987 and another in August of 1988. Why? Sandy would ask, why would anybody run a marathon? <laughs> because in addition to everything else she was, my mother was quite demanding. And on her deathbed, she made Dean promise he would return to Hurley, Wisconsin in August to run a marathon they had finished together the previous year, which they did in five hours and 48 minutes. What's more, 
He was to take two hours off their time. She was 14 years his senior and knew full well that she had slowed him down. So on the day my mother died, I told Dean I'd run that Pavo Normie marathon with him and let's each try to take an hour off. Split the difference. As that Minnesota cop approached my window, my approach, my window was already down and I quickly handed him my license and registration without a word because I was a pro by now. Do you know why I stopped you? He asked. I had assumed distracted driving because, you know, the map. But sticking with the truth, I said, no. You were going 43 in a 35 mile an hour zone. Okay, now I'm getting pissed. I was on a four lane divided highway. The median had mature trees. Where I grew up in West Virginia, this would be a freaking interstate and the speed limit would be 55. I was going the same rate of speed as everyone else and this cop was ruining Dean's chances of making Boston. I wanted to scream, but I didn't. The cop turns to go back to his car and I keep it together as he walks away. And then I burst into tears of frustration and pain. But at least this time, I had the emotional strength to wait until the cop walked away before I broke down in front of a perfect stranger. But this was Minnesota in early October and I had left the window down and the cop must have heard me make some kind of noise you make when you're starting to cry. Or maybe my mother's spirit tapped him on the shoulder. Either way, he turned around, walked back to my window, and asked if I was okay. I explained I was lost and why I needed to get to mile 19 as quickly as possible. And the next thing you know, I had a police escort <laughs> with flashing lights. There were several other times I got away with breaking the law while behind the wheel. Like when I was stopped in Boston for not having a current inspection and drove away with a referral to the cop's cousin who was apparently an honest mechanic. <laughs> or more recently here in Leesburg, when I dropped my cell phone, this was before it's illegal to hold them in your hand, and was swerving all over the road trying to retrieve it from the floor of the passenger side. I explained what happened and somehow that was okay. And so on. I used to like telling these, story, these stories, no, nowhere near the full context you're getting today, mind you, just the gist of how I've managed to rack up seven warnings from the police. <laughs> then George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis, and I watched in horror, as I'm sure many of us did. And I started thinking about all the black people who have been stopped by cops and died as a result. U.S. police have killed over 600 people in traffic stops since 2017. And a vastly disproportionate number of them were black. Dante Wright, Sandra Bland, Philandro Castile, Gabrielle Navarez, Tal Nichols, just, just to say a few names out loud. I thought about my first time in Minneapolis, my encounter with the police there. And I was truly ashamed of myself. Ashamed for blithely bragging about my white privilege. Not only being, not only getting away with breaking the law, but actually being rewarded for it. I told my long suffering wife, Sandy, that she would never again have to listen to me tell the story of my seven police warnings, never again. And yet she's probably sitting there thinking, here we are. <laughs> but, but Sandy, in my defense, I hope you'll agree. I think this is a whole new telling of that story. It's about reflecting on past traumas 
and figuring out what we can learn from them. I learned a lot about how precious and precarious life is by losing my mother at a relatively young age. And I am deeply grateful to be part of a beloved community that nurtures my growth and helps heal my pain every Sunday I get to come and in so many other ways. Now, as our beloved administrator Gabby knows, this sermon has gone through many titles as it was knocking itself around inside my head. An earlier version was Meditations on Nurturing the Marginalized, after the colon. It was always gonna be cops and fast cars. Um, I, I knew I wanted to talk about my white privilege. And sermons, at least mine, are supposed to be problem statement, statements that then offer solutions. But as I listened to Frank's sermon last week about holding tight to our faith by nurturing our anger and channeling that anger to help heal our world, I realized mine was a different message, perhaps not as ambitious. I thought that this week, maybe we should just focus on ourselves. We are all marginalized in some ways, and we are all privileged in others. It's complicated. Let's meditate on that. Like the survey on traffic violations, this exercise is optional, but if you're interested, please make sure you're very comfortably seated with your feet firmly on the ground, lovingly reached through this old and sacred chapel, Maybe you'd like to push against the floor with your right foot like you're gunning a gas pedal or push on your left as if you're pushing a brake. Either way, get yourself connected with Mother Earth. Gently close your eyes and be prepared to keep them closed for a few minutes unless you decide to open them, which you're free to do anytime. Think about all the ways you yourself have been marginalized when you were denied access or opportunity because others withheld it, when you were made to feel less than, when you were mansplained, talked over, looked over, shamed, bullied, or disempowered, or worse yet, God forbid, if you began to believe that you yourself were somehow less worthy or less deserving because those messages kept coming at you, or maybe because laws actually denied you rights that other people who were not like you had. And by you, please let me also talk to the straight, white, cis males in this sanctuary. I see how your privilege has become your cross to bear. Hey, what did you do? I see you being penalized and blamed for representing the ruling class. I see you not getting the job because they needed a black woman. And often, they really do need a black woman. But hey, that's not your fault either. There are many reasons we all need to heal from our marginalization, heal from whatever is our unique pain. And there are also many ways in which we need to lean into, own, and learn from our privilege. Because we are also privileged in many ways. I bet all of us know where our next meal is coming from. And if you don't, please see the minister. She has a discretionary fund. Most of us know where we will rest our heads tonight. We have choices, opportunities, freedom, security. All of us, every single last one of us sitting here today has one another. We are a beloved community of people who have committed to nurturing one another. 
And if this is your first day, or if you're a newcomer who has not yet accepted our covenant, signed the book, made that pledge, well, let me tell you something, you're privileged too. You're lucky enough to have stumbled upon an amazing group of people. Please, if you haven't already done so, open your eyes and take a look around. This room is full of people who have committed to kindling the flame of love and justice to nurture and heal ourselves, each other, and the world. We are truly privileged to be in this beloved community with one another. But we must begin and begin again every Sunday and every other day of the week to nurture and heal ourselves. 